I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, um, M. Night Shyamalan's um, movie Old came on um, HBO Max, and I watched it and I want to talk about it. Um, but first, thank you to everyone who listened to last week's episode and, and got through um, the tinniness of my um, the, uh, the sound in the second half of the show. I appreciate you for sticking around. Um, you know, when you have no time, but you still want to do a thing, you make things happen. So appreciate you for sticking around. Hopefully the sound quality is much better this time. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, also, so we're in this interesting, or at least I find myself in the middle of Mental Health Awareness Month, in this interesting space where there's new releases that are coming out, but I'm not thrilled about them. And I have a comment about We Own the City, um, or We Own the City 2 on HBO, but I think, so have y'all, I can't remember if I talked about this last episode or not, probably not, but have y'all seen Undone, Amazon, um, Amazon Prime's Undone? The first, the first, um, season was very interesting, um, compelling even. A woman, here's the premise, a woman Um, A Mexican-American woman, um, or at least, yeah, a woman who identifies as Mexican-American, she has a complicated relationship with her mother who's viewed as kind of like the authoritarian. Her father has died, um, and her sister is on the verge of getting married, and she's in this place in her life where she has this boyfriend, she has this job, and things are going okay, but then she begins to experience her father. She, she sees her father, and then she begins to experience life differently. And to her, this is literally a supernatural journey. To everyone around her, including her mother, this is psychosis. And a twist in the show is that her father, whom she's seeing and engaging with, according to her mother, was living with a mental health condition. I can't remember the the condition, but it's named in the first season. And I did a show on this. I did a whole whole, um, podcast episode about it, but I can't even, I think it's literally called Undone. So it must have been two years ago. No, did it come out last year? It probably, it came out probably... In 2020 or 2019. So go back and look for my one of my episodes if you want to listen to it. It's literally undone in any way. I'm paraphrasing it, but there are more nuances that I haven't touched. Anyway, so her father lived with a mental health condition and died. And so basically the whole season, the whole first season is either her getting closer to unlocking this spiritual, unlocking the door to the spiritual plane where her father is, or it's her slow descent into madness, 
her slow descent into psychosis. Um, and the season ends on a cliffhanger. Um, even though it's a flight of fancy, I think it's, I think it was responsible in terms of, it was, responsible is a strong word. I think it was inventive and respectful, but also there's a couple of things that are happening here. So definitely the, the viewer is exposed in part and not perfectly either, but in part to uh, um, the mestizo Mexican-American um, diaspora or the Latinx diaspora and the, well, the Amerind, is Amerindian in there? No, 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 that's another. But so the um, indigenous American piece, um, what they call it, First Nations, there, there's First Nations um, history there and, and cultural references there. Um, there's also, there's also this brief conversation about being um, a part of the diaspora, but lighter complected. Um, and your proximity, like, yeah, actually that's, it's not labeled colorism, but it's definitely labeled. It's kind of couched as how close are you to the culture? How closely do you cling to the culture? How do you identify? It also kind of outlines a little bit of a caste system, a little bit, I guess, but I don't know enough about the culture to be able to speak on it, but it's, it's, it presents itself as that there's, there's definitely ways that you engage or places where you fit. And if you are mestizo, that means you have a white parent. Um, and so that's just where you are, but you're not ostracized. It's just, that's where you are in the culture. And again, I don't know enough to say this with authority, but that's the sense that I got. And so there's that conversation, obviously the conversation of the spiritual world and how and I think this is a conversation that anybody connected to religion, if you study religion at all, if you are a practicer of a religion, you have to, our world is such that you have to keep an open mind. Literally, our belief system precludes us, not precludes us, but, but, but our belief system in and of itself requires us to be open, which is so ironic because so many folks on the extreme ends of, of at least the three Abraham religions are extremely closed-minded in their thought processes. And then you begin to think, well, is that a spirituality or is that like just the religious practice and gatekeeping the religious practice? Another conversation for another day, but if you are a spiritual person who practices a belief system believes in a deity or deities, then you are already by proxy open. And so one of the things that one of the things that I think this series does, which I think is pretty smart, which is has us as people of color who come from other religious spiritual practices or and I'm thinking about this from the lens of the African diaspora and how what I know about the way that black folks worship through Christianity is very is different than the way non-black folks do specifically because what we don't know is that as we worship in our form of worship there are 
practices that we have that that are ancestral in our DNA. We don't even know why we do them. We can couch it to tradition, but it's ancestral. And I if you black, you know, if you black and spiritual, you know what I'm talking about. Even if you're an atheist and but you were around the black church, you know what I'm talking about. Now, whether or not the black church today will acknowledge, it depends on excuse me, it depends on where you worship. It depends on what corner of the black church you're in. Um, but nevertheless, there there has to be what I'm saying is you have to acknowledge the ways in which black folks worship are tied directly to our ancestral um, our ancestry. No, no debating about it. It's, it's literally in our DNA, but then also you can see it in our culture, especially Gullah Geechee culture, especially, actually, Gullah Geechee culture. You cannot tell me that hoodoo is not up and all up it. it also, it, anyway. <sighs> anyway, I, I, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but the long and short of it is, what this what this series helped at least me understand and probably started a conversation if you were paying attention with a lot of folks who have an indigenous background um indigenous background or if you are a, you know a person of color reaching back to your diaspora asian diaspora latinx diaspora um african diaspora that if you're reaching back and you're taking a peek, then what this series is also doing, and again, it's loosely doing through the storytelling in this sci-fi fantasy series, is allowing you to examine, giving you the freedom to examine the spiritual practices of your people. And yeah, it's, it's really doing that um, as something like an undertone, but the overtone is... Is she descending into madness or is she unlocking, unlocking a door to the next plane? Um, and it ends on a cliffhanger. It ends on a cliffhanger. It's, it came, I think the first episode premiered, premiered in early May. May is Mental Health Month, as I've shared. May is Mental Health Month in the United States. And so an interesting conversation. I cannot say that it was what I don't know if it was well received in the entire mental health community if they watched it, because sometimes, most times, when you talk about mental health, unless you are working with clinicians, unless you're working with peers, folks who experience mental health um, symptoms and, and have diagnosed conditions, um, it's really hard for you to get it right. And when you're talking about sci-fi, yes, the sky is the limit, but you still have a responsibility and a care to care for your characters. And one thing that I noticed in this show, and again, we're not a monolith, people who are in the mental health world who have, I'm someone who identifies as a caregiver. That means a loved one of mine is living with a mental health condition. Um, And so I'm through my own mental health journey of just my own wellness and then my work, which is in mental health, I've strived to become a better caregiver over this, uh, in, in this, since I've been in this field, in this particular corner of this field. And so looking at it from a caregiver perspective, the mother responded how most caregivers respond. Um, because again, her, she watched her husband 
um, she watched her husband's symptoms appear and get worse. And then she had two children that she needed to protect. And so she became the bad guy, which caregivers often do become the bad guy for various reasons. And you can't say they're all bad. You can't say they're all good. Many times as caregivers, we want to project our own version of wellness onto our loved ones unfairly because at the end of the day, wellness looks different to every person and nobody can tell me what well is or what my well is. All they can tell me is how to help me get there. All, that's that's what medication is. That's what talk therapy is. That's what a support system is. They don't do the, they don't put you on your wellness journey. They help you. They assist you on the journey that you've decided that you're going to walk. At the end of the day, it's you. It's about you and your response to it. And that's hard to do. That's hard to let go of that control, especially when you are living, you have a loved one who at different times feels very out of control. And again, that whole control piece, that's a societal thing, right? We always want to seem to be in control. We always want to seem like we have our thing together. And to not seem that way, to, to appear as though you don't have your thing together means you're weak somehow, means societally anyway, not in reality, but societally, um, it's the appearance that you're weak. And so what do we do? We overcompensate as caregivers in many cases, and we do the most when what is really needed is a softer approach and patience, which is easy to say. Any fool can say that. It's a heck of a lot harder to live it. And so thinking about the mother, yeah, I felt every last piece of that thinking about the sibling and 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 trying to be supportive of your sibling who does not believe that they're experiencing mental health symptoms but that they're they're un, they're entering into this new plane of existence and then also trying to support your mother who has been straight with you straighter than you than with your sibling about what they think it is and that hard weird place that it is to be that middle that go between that tap dance that you have to do as that type of caregiver that sibling caregiver even child caregiver i imagine if you were the child your parent is experiencing mental health crisis um not even a crisis but they're they're experiencing mental health symptoms uh, symptoms of a condition um that tightrope that you have to walk, that you have to walk, as not the pri- you're, so you're not the primary caregiver is what I'm saying. You're not the primary, but you're a part of the team. Who we? I don't envy that walk at all, and I know it. I know that walk intimately. I know that walk very well, and yet, and yet, it's it's. It never, I imagine it never gets any easier and the situation is stickier depending on who you're playing middleman for and for how long. And so anyway, so those things were great. And then, so the, the, like I said, so this first season is all about, you know, under, trying to determine which is which. And I think they did a good job of about as good as you could do. Um, about being respectful of mental health and the family experience, the peer experience, but the family experience too. I cannot bring myself though to watch 
the rest of the, I, I watched part of the first episode of the second season and I'm not able at this time to move forward with the series. Why? Because now it's moving into a wet realm. And again, I know it's fantasy. But now I'm not comfortable with the portrayal here because her side. Uh, in the second episode, in the second season, very first episode. It wasn't a mental health condition from her perspective. And again, you have to pay attention to the narrator here. But from her perspective, she literally did unlock. She unlocked the door to the next plane. She found her father. It's about time travel. It's about bending time and and space. And something about that didn't set with me now. I was G4 at first season. Some about that first episode didn't sit well with me. And I I couldn't hang on anymore, so I hopped off the boat. Hopped off the ride. And maybe later I'll go back to it. But it feels it feels a little irresponsible. And I don't quite know. So when it was fantasy, when when it was a choice, when we didn't know, I think it was still in the realm of responsibility because reality is something that we're all trying to make sure that we have a grasp on. And so that feels real. And maybe that was a, that was what I, maybe that was cool at the, I don't know, maybe that was more palatable at the time. But now that she has, now in this second season, in this first episode, and again, I don't even know where this thing goes. It could very well be that this is all a dream, right? But I don't think, and that she actually does get help and that there's a lesson here, a metaphysical, spiritual lesson or something like that. But I don't know. That first episode just didn't sit right with me. And I don't think I want to go on that journey. Um, which is a shame because, like I said, the way the first, episode, the first season ended felt very... Felt like we were about to go on, some, uh, on a journey that was that I wanted to go on. I don't want to go on this one, I don't think. So so I leave that there. I did try to watch it. I, like I said, I got through halfway through the first episode of the second season, and then I had to, I had to cut it off. Um, and, and I tried to start it again twice, and it just never sat well with me. And so I'm going to leave it where it is. But I invite you to watch it and just give me a little heads up. Where does it go? Is it worth watching? I... I Credit to the actors. Really, you know, I like the story. I just don't like where it's going. Um, so let's shift. And 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 anyway, so I'll leave it there. But if you want to leave me a comment, if you want to end up if you end up watching it, and it it feels responsible the way it goes, um, the way the rest of the series goes, then you know, let me know that. Drop me a message. Leave me a message. Anchor FM. The the voice message, <clears throat> the voice message, you can um, click it in the show notes or directly go to the, my page. Um, you can also uh, just leave me a comment on any of the platforms where you can find me, Twitter, what have you. Um, okay, so let's leave that there and then let's jump to 
before we get into Himna Shyamalan's um, old, can I just talk to you about We Own the City? Um, I've already shared when I first reviewed We Own the City, and I think even before this, I'm sure I've shared over the years that I follow local reporters um, here in Baltimore. And one of the local reporters, well, two of the reporters that I follow who I think do really great um, work is Jane Miller. Google Jane Miller. She's really great. She's an investigative reporter. She does bomb work. And then also her just regular, regular person commentary is interesting. Um, because it, I think one of the reasons why... Because it feels real. It feels like somebody who enjoys living in Baltimore with all... It, 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 it's, actually, her and Justin Fenton sound like they love Baltimore, warts and all. They have different perspectives. Um, slightly different. Well, no, no, no. They have different perspectives. Um, but it's clear that they love Baltimore. It's clear that they have a vested interest in reporting stories that are underreported. Um... And so Jane Miller, though, feels like she she champions more for young people. I don't know. She has a heart. Well, I don't know what her motivations are, but it seems like she's she spends a lot of time um, shedding light on young people and issues that will impact young people in our city. um, And then also just spotlighting the dumbness um, in politics and things like that. Justin Fenton spends a lot of time covering homicides and corruption. Um, Justin Fenton is the one who broke, um, healthy, I, I think, yeah, yeah, he broke healthy Holly, the scandal with, um, Sheila, not, not Sheila Dixon, but, um, Catherine Pugh, former mayor Catherine Pugh. He, he's the one that, that broke that, um, that story. He also is the writer of the book We Own the City, which is about the gun trace task force or uh, tracking task force um, and is a producer or director or consultant, something like that, on the HBO series based on his book. Um, and anyway, I go back and forth with him. He reports on homicides and unfortunately... He reported on a homicide that um, was connected to me. It wasn't a family member. And actually, that's all I'll say. It wasn't a family member, but there was a connection. Um, A loose connection to me. And the way he reported on it felt gross. And I think the only reason why it felt gross is because... The perpetrator was a black kid and literally a kid. And the victim was a white man. And you report on what it is. And the the fact of the matter is that this kid was a part of a group that did something to this man. And the story is what it is. But I think there was something gross about the way that he reported on it that just turned my stomach. But at the same time, he's illuminating stories. 
it felt, you know what it is? It felt um, like, not gratuitous. There was a moment in his, in his reporting where he literally reported exclusively on all of fatal shootings in Baltimore. It seemed like he reported more on, at least reported out on his social, the, and graph, I'm about to be graphic here, but um, quote unquote kill shots, which is referenced in We Own This City. Um, the kill shots that, um, that were, uh, administered. Um, in other words, this is not just gang. This is not just violence to get somebody. This is violence to end someone's life intentional. I'm not going for your body. I'm going for your head. I do not want you to exist anymore. Um, and so there was a time where his whole feed was about, the latest number and the trends in kill shots um, across the city. And I, I think he was trying to link a story there. And I just remember thinking, I don't know what you want me to do with this. I don't know what you want me to do with this. Because you're not saying, let us focus on the thing that is helping these folks to make these kill shots. You're not talking about increasing resources to tamp down on violence, to inject out of school time programming and job readiness and jobs themselves and other resources, basic income or whatnot. You're not talking about any of that. You're literally just listing that. That's what it is. You were literally just listing all of, at least that's how I perceived it at the moment. It felt gross. And so his reporting on this particular case that I had a connection to felt gross as well. Now that case preceded his, his venture into talking about kill shots um, by at least a year, maybe a year and a half. No, 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 two or three years actually, my bad. But nevertheless, it's, it was just in there. But at the same time, I follow him because he talks about stories that are impacting impacting regular regulars. And so I guess I would say a fan is too strong of a word. I appreciate most of his stories, most of his journalism, most of the things he's brought to light. I do have a problem with what I've already mentioned, but nevertheless, I appreciate the hard work. Um, and especially with this gun trace conversation, what we're learning, what you're learning in the, well, actually what I'm learning, because I only, you know, you could live in an area, you can live in an area and not truly know everything, even though you live it. It's just hard because you focus on your, you focus on what you can focus on. Um, and so... I think the story itself is so multi-layered and nuanced that it'll make your head spin. But what is clear is that rampant abuse existed in the Baltimore City Police Department. What we also know is that, let's be for real, they got a new commissioner in Baltimore County for similar reasons. Um, There are other issues going on in the county, mainly. Well, anyway, there are other issues going on in the county. Um, too. So let us not just solely focus on Baltimore. I, I think that's what I don't want you to miss. When you're w- watching We Own This City, you want to focus exclusively on BCPD. 
Don't do that. That's what this show is about. But don't be kind. Don't be fooled. Baltimore County has its own. Baltimore County Police Department has its issues as well. All of these, indeed, every single one of the departments in the state of Maryland has some sort of issues. If you but just scratch the surface, it just it's more this gun trace task force. It's just sexier. It's a sexy story. But anyway, so as I'm watching it, it's occurring to me that I'm getting bored with the story because it's so gratuitous. It's not interesting to me. And I'm wondering, so the story itself is interesting to me, but this slow burn approach is boring to me. Um, Because what are you, so you're trying to tell me that he's uber corrupt. Well, you got, you got your point across it by episode two. Episode three, here we are, and you're just showing new ways that he was a scumbag. Well, we knew he was a scumbag. I, I, I don't know. I'm bored with it because I'm wondering where, where's, where are we going, baby? Get where we're going. Because now you got me at Freddie Gray. You got me at Freddie Gray and... Oh, by the way, my perception has changed of... Um, uh, not Bielfeld, but um, yeah, was it Biel- Bielfeld? The, the commissioner at the time, the commissioner who took over Bielfeld, it's Bielfeld. Um, was that Bielfeld that took over after the black guy? Can't call it. I, I'm splitting together, but I said in my um, initial. The commissioner that I was talking about, I think it was Bielfeld, um, in my initial, um, in my review of the first episode of We Own the City, and I was wondering if my perception of him was going to change. It has. Um, and I don't know if it's, it has fairly changed, but from what I'm seeing, it feels like a wet noodle. Dude was like riding the fence, which I understand coming in new, inheriting problems, and then trying to stave off others, like, that's not, I don't envy that. But at the same time, dude feels like a wet noodle right now. Um, And also, I just don't think you can make me feel like um, the main character, which is um, Wayne Jenkins, is any dirtier. So the only thing that you can tell me right now, the only thing you can do for me right now is to shift the story on how they got these people, which I think it's trying to do. It's just not getting there soon enough, which is why this third episode felt boring to me. Anyway, um, I'm still going to watch it because it's a compelling story. And the, what's not boring is the fact that some people have, some people died in the process of this man rising in rank. They died as a result of his overzealousness and illegal activity. And the sheer amount, so, so some people died at the hands of Wayne Jenkins and his recklessness. Some people's lives were altered forever at the hands of Wayne Jenkins and his re- recklessness and the department's inability or their, uh, their willingness to cover up, to cover for him. So that's not boring. Um, and I imagine if you, if you, you gave a dollar to everybody that had a connection to Wayne Jenkins that wasn't good, whose loved one or themselves were railroaded in some way by an action that he took. 
you'd be giving out a lot of money. It would be in the thousands with an S on the end of it. For sure. Couple thousand. If you just gave out a dollar of the people who were impacted by Wayne Jenkins' corruption. So anyway, I hope the story does pick up a little bit because I don't, I don't care how dirty he was. He's dirty, 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 dirty as can be. Get me to how you get him. Like this, this story had, this episode had him robbing a, a dancer who was a little person. Okay, he's a scumbag. But again, we knew he was a scumbag from episode two. You established that. Would you Technically, you established that he was a scumbag in, in episode one. So move on. Get down the road here, please. And what the heck are you doing with Sean Suter? I don't know who to blame. I don't know if it's Justin Fenton. I don't know if it's Dee Watkins. Who's slowing this thing down to the point where it's a doggone crawl? Is it Peliconis? Pelecona, the, the dude that, does the wire, that did the wire and that did the deuce. Whatever that guy's name is. Who's, bald, who, who's doing this? Who's slowing this down to a doggone crawl? Because this isn't a podcast that I'm watching while I'm doing work or listening to while I'm doing work. This is a show you want me to watch. So pick, the, pick up that pace, baby. Anyway, um, but enough about that. Um, I also watched The Circle again. And I guess I'll have more feedback on The Circle next week because it feels like it's, it's slowing down a little bit. Um, not slowing down, just... It's not as exciting as I'm expecting it to be. So I'm hoping that when the episodes are released, which were released by the time you're listening to this we were released yesterday um I'm gonna watch those episodes and and um hopefully it'll pick back up but anyway well today I want to talk about old and I'm gonna talk about all the quick and dirty the reviews and all of that I'm gonna talk about M. Not Shyamalan movies in a, in a nutshell but then so this movie got me thinking about something um something interesting that I that that I don't know that this is unique to the United States, but it's definitely something we do in the United States that this, that this um, episode has me thinking about. So um, in, the next ep- in the next segment, it's all about M. Night Shyamalan's old, all the particulars, and then I'll go into the details. So if you haven't watched the thing, maybe pause this thing, watch it, and then come back. Or if you don't care, keep, keep listening. Okay, here it is. Old is a 2021 horror film, um, one hour and 48 minutes in length by director M. Night Shyamalan. Um, It is based on Sandcastles by Pierre Oscar Levy or Levi and Frederick Peters. Frederick Peters, probably German or some junk. Anyway, box office was 90.1 million. I don't know what the budget was because it's not showing it. Um, maybe hold on. Oh, the oh, how you gonna make money? The budget was 18 million. The box office was 90.1 million. So you made your money back and then some. That sucks because I mostly thought this movie was meh. What did the kids say? Mid? This movie was mid at best and, and mid is being generous. Um, like I said, it, um, it was released in 2021, 
but it just came on um, HBO Max. Um, it just came on HBO Max um, a couple of days ago, I think. Whatever. I, I watched it as soon as when it came on. Um, this thing stars. And this is... Uh, let me just get into this and then I'll back back up and talk about M. Night Shyamalan and movies as a whole. Okay, so this thing stars... Um, how can I do this? Hold on, let me do it like this. Um, this thing stars Thomasine McKenzie as Maddox Kappa, which will come into play in a little bit. Abby Lee, who is Crystal. Um, Gael Garcia Bernal, um, who plays Guy Kappa. Um, Maddox Kappa is his child. Alex Wolf plays Trent Kappa. Trent Kappa is Guy's child. Um... I'm really putting a lot of emphasis on saying child because, you know, anyway, um, I think the, the way I normally say it sounds country. So anyhow, um, <laughs> uh, Rufus Sewell plays Charles. He's a doctor. I don't know what Guy Kappa is. I don't know. Abby, uh, Abby Lee plays Crystal as a housewife. So Crystal is Charles's much younger wife. Fine old Aaron Pierre is in this thing playing a character, a rapper named Midsize Sedan. I'm very frustrated. I'm very frustrated. That's the most ch- childish, tacky, stupid, if I were a rapper, as some intellectual saying, if I were a rapper, what sort of kooky name would I come up with that is like, would be cool. Midsize Sedan is, is what they landed on. Midsize Sedan. I'm so disrespectful. That's disrespectful to this man's beautiful face. My goodness. Anyway, woof. Not to mention, like, oh, come on. He's gorgeous. And you do him like this, but we'll move on. Anyway, uh, Alexis Swinton, because it's not just the name. It's literally the character, but we'll, I'll hasten on. Anyway, Alexis Swinton as Maddox, age 11. I'll get to the why. Um, anyway, Vicky Krapes, I think she's German or something, too, is... Prisca, Prisha, Kappa. Prisha Kappa is the wife of Guy Kappa and the mother of Maddox and Trent. Um, Eliza Shanlin plays Kara, and Elizabeth Davids plays adult Maddox, and Francesca Estwood plays Madrid. There's more people in here, but like it just it just just detract from the the overall story because I'm going to tell you the why. Um, So what else do I want to say about it? Um, Oh, sorry, my bad. It was released July 19th, 2021. So just under a year ago. Well, two years under a year, whatever. You know what I mean? Um, It was released this month, but it was released on um, HBO Max this month, but it's been out for over a year for for just under a year. Um, what else do I want to say? So it's a thriller, a thriller about a family on a tropical holiday who discover that the secluded beach where they are relaxing for a few hours is somehow causing them to age rapidly, reducing their entire lives into a single day. And here it is. So the reviews on this thing, I, if you don't even remember this movie, I don't blame you. Even though it made its money back and then some in the box office, a lot of folks, I definitely remember a lot of folks talking about 
this movie. Um, and then talking about M. Night Shyamalan himself and his type of movies. Um, so these reviews should not come, th these reviews certainly don't come as a shock to me. Um, okay, so it's got 5.8 out of 10 from IMDb. 50%, is that fresh or rotten? It's like 50% um, on Rotten Tomatoes, 3.8 out of 5 on Voodoo. I don't even know where that comes from. Um, and 61% of Google users like this film. I said I didn't like this film because I, it's mostly meh. Like the only reason why I have any affection for this film at all is because of uh, Aunt, what was baby's name? What is that man? The beautiful man's name. Uh, Aaron Pierre and Rufus Sewell. Oh, and, and Gael Garcia Bernal, because they're cute. That's literally it. Those three actors, that is the only reason. I'm not, I, I don't have an affinity for M. M. Night Shyamalan movies. Um, everybody else in here doesn't appeal to me in any way. I don't particularly think they're great actors or anything like that. Um, but those three actors, these three actors, Gael Garcia Bernal is a powerhouse actor and Rufus Sewell is in everything. In Masterpiece Theater, in he's the, been the bad guy, he's been the good guy, he's been the regular Joe, he's been some old guy, like, he's good, I enjoy his acting, plus he's pretty, in a weird way, you know what I mean, you know what I mean, anyway, um, but then Aaron Pierre, <laughs> you know, he can act, mm-hmm, yup, he sure can, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he also good looking. Anyway, and then Gael Garcia Bernal, I think he's cute. And he can act well. You know what I mean? So, like, that's it. That's the only reason why I watched this thing. And I was disappointed in all three of the caricatures. All three of the characters that they were playing. I said to myself, I said, self, why in the world did you take this picture? Why did you agree to take this picture? Why'd you do it? You know, maybe you wanted to, it, I, okay, I will give, I will give Gael Garcia Bernal and Rufus Sewell the card where they're like, I just wanted to do this thing that was different to what I'm normally doing. I'm used to be, you know, I'm always adapting my style and stuff like that. Okay, they've been in the business for a minute. Got you. Okay, you wanted to take a walk on the wild side, see what this be like and it didn't pay off. Well, actually, according to the box office, it paid off, baby. Um, so you did you did your thing, and now you're going to go back to something else that is more challenging or a different challenge. Aaron Pierre, you trying to get your name out there, perhaps. I don't know how long you've been acting. You've definitely been on the, um, um, on the play stage for a minute. I get it to be in a movie with a big-time director um, and all of that. You know, you... I'm saying though, but you come off of the, the heels of that Amazon show, baby, the sky is the limit for you. But maybe, maybe, maybe what happened is he shot this before he shot the Amazon show. Maybe. And so you do what you do. I remember though, I remember seeing, I remember seeing an interview with Aaron Pierre when I was figuring out who the heck this beautiful man was. Cause I was like, are his eyes really that color? What the what? Anyway, because he was cute and I was looking him up. Anyhow, and I saw an interview of him dressed as this character talking about his muse was Drake. 
And I say, <laughs> looking at the film, the, the, the evidence is on the cutting room floor, apparently, because I don't see, I don't see Drake's influence. I see you just being black with plaits and in some, some uh, earth tones. We'll get to it. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm just, uh, ugh, I, I'll get into it. All right. So, so I've told you the premise of this thing. Um, let me circle back around and, and let me dig in a little deeper. I always like to look at Rotten Tomatoes because they tend to be, I tend to understand the reviews, even if I don't agree with them. I tend to understand where they're coming from, largely because they, they go out of their way. Oh, 50% is a splat. That's what it is, which is appropriate. Um, but anyway, I, I tend to read these a little bit better. Are you kidding? This said best thriller movies of 2021? You are tripping. Oh, no, that's just a, I thought this was in that list. It ain't. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so even if I don't agree, I tend to understand where Rotten Tomatoes, is, uh, their reviewers are coming from. And I like the fact that you have the critics response as well as the audience response here, even though it can be manipulated, I, you know, I, I can appreciate this. So it's a mystery thriller horror is the category that this thing is, um, the Rotten Tomatoes has it under, PG-13. And the tomato meter reads 50% pretty, it's just splat. It's not rotten, it's just ugh. Um, And with, that's with 333 reviews and 50, so 50% on the tomato meter for the, for the critics and 53% um, popcorn is spilt. Um, on the audience score, and that's a thousand plus verified ratings. And in the what to know category, what it says, what it says, what it says. Critics consensus. Old has no shortage of interesting ideas and writer, director, M. Night Shyamalan's uneven execution will intrigue or annoy viewers with little middle ground between. That's the consensus. And the audience consensus is Love him or hate him, no one makes movies quite like M. Night Shyamalan, and no one else could have made old. That's not exactly a glowing review. Because it's, no, I can think of some other directors that could have made old. Did we not, do we not remember that Steven Spielberg made that one movie about old people turning young? What the heck was that Steven Spielberg? You know what I'm talking about. That Steven Spielberg movie where it was these old people, quote unquote, old people in a retirement home. I think these actors were like in their 40s and 50s, but they were aged for this show. Remember the guy that played um, on Trading Places and he was like one of those old guys, those quote unquote old guys. He was in there. One of the, the, the slimmer one, the taller, slimmer one was in there. I think his name was Mortimer in Trading Places. Anyway. Steven Spielberg made that, uh, that, it's not The Fly. What was the name of that movie? Oh my goodness, where they got younger for a night because of some sort of radioactive something or other that had befallen the, the senior retirement community that they were in. This is going to drive me up a wall. Um, 80s film about old people. It's not on Golden Pond. People turning young. I remember there's a little thing, there's a little cocoon. Okay, who did it? Who did it? Who did it? Cocoon. I remember that. I've been a, listen, I have been a um, 
film connoisseur since I was a child. This was a 1985 film. Who directed Cocoon? The premise is when a group of trespassing seniors swim in a pool containing alien cocoons, they find themselves energized and youthful with youthful vigor. But who directed her? Ron Howard, my bad, not Ron Howard. Ron Howard could have done this film. Ron Howard could have done this film because Ron Howard does a bunch of stuff. Ron Howard could have did this film. Yup. He directed it. The writers were Tom Benedek for the screenplay and David Saperstein did the story. Ron Howard could have directed this film and could have leaned on his old, his old, um, writing partners or could have gotten some great writers to help him flesh this thing out. But go look at Cocoon. This, this technique that this, this concept of aging in a day or aging rapidly is not new in movies. So for folks to say only M. Night Shyamalan could have done this movie. No, only M. Night Shyamalan could have did, could have done it so poorly is my, is what I'm saying. So here's, so here it is. I've, you, I've told you the story in the premise. These, these couples, these, this, this, it, it's, it's, uh, who's guy, what the heck is guy's name? Um, really watch Cocoon. I'm serious. Watch Cocoon. And then you tell me, you tell me if no one else, if Ron Howard could not have, so watch, watch old and then go watch Cocoon. And then you tell me if Ron Howard could not have directed old but done it better anyhow um so yeah so so as i said so the so the kappas this thing is supposedly is centering around the kappas um so uh guy kappa pressure pressure kappa maddox and trent Right. It's following this family. And the thing that you need to know about this family is that the marriage is disintegrating. They are going on one last trip before they split up. And that sounds like a terrible idea that you will want want to create one bomb memory before you create a terrible one. Sounds very selfish and stupid, honestly. But maybe I'm just being harsh because I've never been in that situation. But they are acting that the, the uh, pressure and um, guy are fighting yet on the trip. And when they think that their children, they're behind closed doors and their children can't hear, what do we know? Children know everything, just about everything. They just might not have the language to tell you what they're feeling and what they see, but they know just about everything. And, and of course, in this context, guy and pressure are fighting. And they're not hiding it from the kids. Well, they're trying to hide it from the kids, but the kids know. There's literally a scene where they're in this, they, they escape away to this island retreat and, uh, or tropical retreat. And they go and they have this big villa, what looks to be a big villa. And on, they're behind a door arguing. And on the other side of the door, sitting on the bed, are their two children. And the eldest, uh, Maddox, is trying to shield her brother, uh, Trent, from the argument, Maddox is like 11 at this time. No, she's 11 and Trent is six at this, at this point. So they're both young, but 11-year-old Maddox is, is being big sister and aging already. And I'm, I'm sure this was intentional. 
She's already aging beyond her years because she's trying to protect her brother from the fight that she knows is happening. She wants him to be happy, so she tells him to go play. And he does because he's six years old and he doesn't understand what's happening and she doesn't want him to understand, but her 11-year-old self does. And the metaphor here is that, you know, whether we like it or not, sometimes we make our kids age before their time because of our adult choices and not being able to get our thing together. And who brings a disintegrating family on a trip for one last good time, expecting that whole good time to be great? Then you have other couples that come into play. Um, we meet uh, Crystal and Charles and Charles's mother, played by Kathleen Schalfant, who's Agnes. And so Agnes, Charles, and um, Crystal are on vacay with Kara? Is it Kara? Can't call it. Anyway, they're on, they're on, I think it's, it's Micaiah Fisher plays Kara. Anyway, they're on vacation with their kid. And um, so Rufus, sorry, my bad, Charles and, and Crystal are on vacation with their kid and Charles's mother, Agnes, um, just getting away. And it's clear that the setup here is that Crystal is a young, a significantly younger woman to Charles's, to Charles's older man. But he's a doctor, he's a very accomplished doctor and she's beautiful and you get the appearance that she's working her best to try to remain as beautiful as possible but she's aging too. Like you get, she's younger than, than um, Charles but like you get the sense that she's an aging beauty and aging in this context feels like, you know, I don't even, it's, it's, it's like a white version of aging. No, Hollywood, white Hollywood version, actually just Hollywood version of aging. When you are in your, when you're in your like thirties, late twenties, early thirties, you're an aging beauty at this point. Um, and so you get the sense that she's, she's in her middle thirties, still trying to, uh, seem as if she's in her twenties. Um, I guess at least you get the sense also that she might be a little bit of a gold digger. I don't know, but here's Agnes just on vacation with her son, grandson and uh, daughter-in-law just living life, uh, you know, at her age, she's got a lot of life left, um, but they're just out here as a family enjoying. You also immediately get the sense that something, uh, Charles is wound up pretty tight. And Agnes is there, not as a, an overbearing presence, but more like a shadow, more like a support too. So it, it almost feels like she's a chaperone a little bit. And again, you go back to Crystal, who's super beautiful and, and, and super beautiful and, and putting on this image of this, this beautiful housewife. But you get, the, you get the sense that there's a little something beneath and you're not really sure. And then you got their child just hanging out. And then you're introduced. There are these. Um, no, I will say this. I, I wish I could hear more about these folks, but it is what it is. I remember Ken Luang. Is it? it let's call him Lung. Lung. 
because I don't know how, to, how you pronounce L-E-U-N-G. But anyway, Ken Leung plays Jaron Carmichael, who is married to Nikki Amu, Amuka Bird's character, Patricia Carmichael. Um, she's a psychologist. He's a nurse and they're just on vacation. And the thing that we know about them is I think they're childless, but also I think she's living with severe epilepsy um, to the point where when we're first introduced to them as a couple, like shortly after we're introduced to them, she has a seizure, like a grand mal seizure or something like that. And Jaron, again, because he's a nurse, and I guess he's an ER nurse. He just like is so cool about making her feel comfortable in that moment. Because can you imagine being at this resort where at, at breakfast or at some sort of dining time where or in a dining room where you have these little tables around everywhere and you're at the beach or whatever and everybody's around. You've been to a resort before. At the very least, you've been to a hotel a hotel restaurant where you see there's just a million little tables, little baby tables around to make this cute, kind of set up this cute little ambiance. And then you should fall out and have a seizure. I don't know if you've ever had no, I don't know if you yourself might experience seizures or you know someone in your life who's experienced seizures, but they're never pretty. And while it's dramatized online or in movies and, and media and stuff, um, it's not pretty in person. Everybody experiences seizures differently. I knew this boy who's, for the most part, he had, he suffered from seizures all his life. And I met him when he was a teenager. And by the time he was a teenager, he knew how to hide a seizure, which man, stigma is a son of a gun because why would you want to hide something you cannot control, but, uh, but for our society making you feel that way. And I can remember he had a seizure. And the first time I saw him having a seizure, I thought he was just mad about something or he had just bitten his tongue. And you know how you bite your cheek or your tongue and you just get real mad because you're like, why did I do that? Or, and you're just like, oh, like I honestly, honestly, I literally thought everything else but he was having a seizure. And so what did I do? I left him. We were by ourselves. We were actually in this. I'll never forget it. It was was it 11th grade? It was like 10th grade or 11th grade. And we were in this little gym that was a part of our school, this little wor workout room that was a part of our school. It was a little smaller workout room to the larger one. Um, and we were working out, boom, boom, boom. It was like a classroom that had been converted into a little, a little mini gym. I don't even know why we needed a mini gym, a mini workout room when we had a bigger weight room. But anyway, so we were both in there. We were doing, it was a part of track. We were doing conditioning a strengthening part of the practice. And it was just he and I, and we were talking and then he stopped talking. I look over and you know, he's just sitting looking as if he's contemplating. And I'm just like, all right, well, you know, it's whatever, I'm gonna see you later. He shakes his head. He gives me that, that nod like, oh, yep, I'm gonna holla at you. And then I keep it pushing. Then I learned from his sister, and mind you, at this time, we had be, be, he was younger than me, but like we were developing a relationship, like a friendship. I don't know if he liked me or not, but anyway, we were developing a friendship for sure. I thought it was a friendship that we were developing, and maybe it was. Anyway, looking back on it, I can't think of what else it could be. I'm not entertaining anything else. How about that? Anyhow, so, um, but he was having a seizure. He was literally having a seizure. And then from then that point forward... 
we were in the same scenario all the time because we were both on the track team. But now I'm like mama bear because if you know anything about me, I am, I have always been a mama bear. When I was a baby, I was a mama bear just because that's just part of my DNA. I can't help it. It's annoying. It's annoying to me. I know it's annoying to my friends and family. But anyway, um, but I can't help it. And so from that point forward, I was always, you can't see what I'm doing, but I was always like, I was always looking, you know what I mean? I was always looking out the corner of my eye, just checking, make sure he wasn't having no seizure. Like this, this time he was being quiet, he wasn't having a seizure. But anyway, I was also trying not to be weird about it, but probably in trying so hard not to be weird, it probably made it weird. But anyway, and so he was able to control his, his response sometimes, sometimes with his seizure. Um, but you should never leave someone who's having a seizure alone. You should just let it ride, let it ride out depending on how severe the seizure is. And obviously don't let them bite their tongue because they can bite it smooth off. And that is a whole mess. Um, but anyway, and, and actually I'm quite sure that there are other things. There are other things that I could tell you or you could learn yourself about seizures. And you should probably just do that because seizures are a certain thing you, that you, you, you know, nobody who suffers from seizures has a look to them. Except when they're going through a seizure and it's usually the oh boy here it comes look their eyes probably get big or their pupils dilate or what have you or their body goes rigid and then all of a sudden you depending on how severe severe it is they fall out and start to convulse or what have you like again everybody experiences all sort of ment- uh, mental health physical conditions differently so just educate yourself just in case and be helpful anyhow moving on but i just thought that there that it was so it, it was so sweet how Jaren just kind of made her feel okay. And turns out, like they made a joke about it when she came out of the seizure, they make a, made a joke about it saying, um, oh yeah, you're so dramatic. Here she goes being dramatic while she's laying on the floor, trying to get her, gather herself to recover. Um, because here's the other thing, seizures do take a lot out of you because your muscles are tightening and constricting and, and, and rapid movement. So it does take a lot out of you anyway. But I just thought that that was a sweet moment. Um, and we learn more about them later. Um, and then who else? Oh, and then there's good old, beautiful, mid-sized sedan who is literally a rapper who's come on, who comes on vacation and at least he's come, he comes on vacation and he's, and he's, um, he's with, um, another woman on the beach. You see him with another woman on the beach and he's just kind of just there. You know what I mean? He, he's not like in frolicking on the beach. By the way, if you are on Twitter, not Twitter, but um, uh, TikTok, get yourself on tw- TikTok. And if you are a part of black TikTok, you know what I'm about to tell you. But because I said frolic. So if you are if you are on um, black TikTok, I know you've seen the frolicking videos. If you are not on black TikTok, you are really denying yourself. OK, if you are not a part of the African diaspora, you can come as a visitor and be respectful. And I don't know how you're going to find your way on black TikTok. Or I, I just, I don't know how you find your way there. I know that I'm there and have been there immediately. Um, have been there since the very beginning, I think. Um, just took me a few seconds to get there. And I was, I was, I was home anyway. But if you are a part of the diaspora and you have not seen the frolicking videos, huh? Uh, I'm just, oh, it's just, it's just, it bring it do bring your heart joy is all I'm saying. So find you some, the, the black boy 
the black people frolicking videos. It's just chef's kiss. It makes you want to go frolic. I'm not frolicking around here. And I'm actually, I'm, mm, none of these beautiful parks in Baltimore am I going to frolic in because some people have their dogs off the leash. Mm-mm. And they have foxes out here. Like we are out here wild. We got foxes and, and other deer around here in Baltimore. I know you wouldn't know it. You, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, but Baltimore is literally a city that has built up out of the wilderness. And so we go through these growing spurts. And so there is a place off Hilton Parkway where if you are, if you are driving on Hilton Parkway in the dawn hours or the um, gloaming hours, you mess around and a deer will jump right on out at you in the middle of Baltimore. It's West Baltimore because that's, that's Baltimore. And then also foxes are everywhere. If there's a foxes and deer, if there's a, if there's a park, a wooded area, Northeast Baltimore, I can remember, Lake Montebello, stayed having foxes and deer, just frolicking. Anyway, I would go frolic over there, but people don't pick up after their dogs. So, you know, most people do, but like some people do not. And so I would prefer to go frolic in the woods. So I I think I'd have to go to the county to do that. Anyway, I digress. Why am I talking about frolic? Oh, because because, um, mid-sized sedan wasn't on the beach frolicking. He was literally just sitting there like a beige bump on a log. For real, he beige in his color, but then also the outfit that he had on was like white, sandy, beige color. And he just kind of blended in and you're wondering why in the heck are you so demure on this beach, this secluded beach, you got this this skinny white woman who's on here trying to show you all of her goodness and she jumping in the water and showing you all of the, the goodies and you just sitting there like a bump on a log. Like, why are you sitting there like a bump on a log? You not with her? Like, what's up? Why are you selling? And so this is how we meet everyone. And I think I've, I've done, I've done it. I've told you everybody. I've told you about the, um, we don't know Charles Crystal. We don't know Charles and Crystal's last name and Agnes, but whatever. But we know the Kappas, C-A-P-P-A. Um, and we know Midsize to Dance. So anyway, so I've in- introduced you to the whole family, the, the, the Carmichaels. So it's Jaron and Patricia Carmichael. The Kappas, Prisha, Prisha, Guy, Maddox, and Trent, and then Charles, Crystal, and Agnes and their child. So that's and Miss Hassanan. So that's the whole that's the whole crew for the most part. There are a few folks in here in between. But Blossom Blue Blue Blue. The um Kappas, something happens at the Kappa table. Um and the, I, I think they're trying to find that again, because the Kappas, be, because Prisha and Guy are trying to manufacture this wonderful family vacation, they um, ask the concierge um, to tell them about something fun to do outside of just walking around on the beach. And blue to the blah, blah, blue. Um, the concierge is like, well, I'll usually do this, but there is a secluded beach a little while away from here that we can put you on a little boat to that. In a-
okay, the recording <laughs> abruptly stopped because hubby called. And I, when hubby called, you do need to answer. I don't know what he talking about, but it was talking about something good. So amen. Um, anyway, okay, so what I was saying was the Kappas were trying to manufacture um, this experience for their uh, family, this one last little ride, because he's thinking, Guy is thinking that this, this trip, this is, this is why, and this is what we tell ourselves sometimes. We, we, when it's over, sometimes we just don't want to admit when it's over. Um, but in this moment, the only reason why Guy agrees to do this thing with Prisha is because he thinks that this, this trip will somehow renew, renew their commitment to each other. Because Prisha is the one that's out the door, not Guy. Prisha is like, no, I really do just want one last great memory before we announce our separation um, because I'm out the door. Anyhow, and so Guy is still secretly, he, he's like outwardly saying, okay, Prisha, you know, we're going to do this. But inwardly, he still has hope that there's going to be some reconciliation here. And so blue, 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 they're talking to the concierge and the concierge is like, I got this bomb spot. It's a secluded beach. You want in, I'll give you a good rate. So bam, you got them. They pack it all up in the, under the guise of let's just try, try to create these wonderful memories for our 11 and six year old. Anyway, so blue, blah, blue, they go out there and they, and so they have to pack all of their stuff. Um, and they make their way out to the beach through this cave that they have to walk through. And this beach truly is pretty beautiful. It's secluded. It's quiet. Nobody else is really out there. There are a few people out there, but it's secluded and quiet. By the time, by the time that the, the Kappas get out there, mid-sized sedan is already out there with his, um, this girl, um, who, the first time we see her is her going out to the beach, getting naked or get, going out to the shore, getting naked and trying to entice midsize sedan in there with her. And he doesn't budge. And again, I'm like, dude, you got a naked woman getting in the water and you not, you not G for it. Like, what's up? What's wrong with you? Like, not only is he like not G for it, he's literally not moved at all. And I'm like, uh, okay. Anyway. So, um, so we see them and then we see the Kappas settle out on the beach and then followed by Charles, Agnes, Crystal and their child who apparently also got that really good deal. And you see them carrying all of their, oh, let me, let me back up, let me back up. The Kappas are driven to this secluded beach thing. It's not a boat, they're driven to the beach by M. Not Shyamalan's character. Anyway, and while they're unpacking and getting all of the things for a day in the beach, you know, your beach chair, your beach blanket, your, your um, umbrella, he brings food for the day because it's a part of the package, but it seems like a whole lot of food, like a lot of food, more food than necessary. And then M. Night Shyamalan's character's only response to Gael Garcia Bernal is, there's a lot of, you got kids, they eat a lot. So we just wanted y'all to make sure you had a lot of enough food. So anyway, they're trekking down this hill and they make it, you know, it's a little tedious, but they make it. And then they finally walk through the cave and find the beach. And then they see midsize sedan with that, that woman out there anyway. And then you see Charles Agnes, um, Charles Agnes, Crystal and the child. And they're dropped off at the same place by, uh, M. Night Shyamalan as van driver. And Charles speaks up and he's like, so you're not finna, so he's unloading. So M. Night Shyamalan's character is unloading all the stuff. And Charles is recognizing 
that there's a lot of stuff to carry. And he's like, you nothing to help us. We've got a senior and a child in tow. You nothing to help us. And he's like, no, you got it. And then so they tediously make their way down to this through this harrowing path. That is the, the hillside of the the hillside of the doggone or the side of the doggone hill. And then they go through the cave just like the Kappas did. And then boom, they're on the beach. They see mid-sized sedan. By this time, the woman that he was with is already in the ocean. Um, and the Kappas are already out there. And then here comes Charles Agnes Crystal and his child. And they're like, oh, okay. And then shortly after they get there and settled. Um, oh, by the way, Charles notices mid-sized sedan and instantly becomes a little jealous, a little green with envy because mid-sized sedan looks the way he do, girl. Come on. Anyway, and so his wife, who is, you know, trying to play the trophy wife thing, he instantly sees that, oh, he don't want her to see mid-sized sedan. And he, and he, doesn't, he certainly doesn't want mid-sized sedan to see his tasty snack of a wife because he going to take her. Like, you get the sense that that's what Charles is thinking. And so you see, you feel Charles getting jealous. And I'm like, I don't know why you're jealous, Charles. You look the way you do. Anyway, like you gonna be fine forever. Anyway, um, but moving on. Um, so you've never met somebody that you just know has always been fine, always gonna be fine. When they 80, they still gonna be attractive. Anyway, that's Rufus Sewell. Sewell but anyway, to me, like there's a piece of him that's just, he's, you know, maybe he's, anyway, let me just, moving on. I feel the same way about Aaron Pierre. Let's be for real. He looked like he was cute when he was a child. He got real big ears, right? Like everybody has something to them. Rufus Sewell's eyes are a little sunken in and they're, they're not even, but like he's attractive. Woof. Got a presence and he's attractive. And then Aaron Pierre, like dude's ears are like Dumbo. You can't get around those big old ears, but baby, that's a small thing in comparison. Anyway, but he's going to be beautiful forever. So anyway, if I were Charles, I'd be like, it's cool. I'm still fine. But also, Miss Isadam, you trying it, but it's fine because I'm still fine. And I probably got more money than you. Anyway, so there's that. And then we're met with Jaron and what did I say old girl's name was? Jaron and Patricia. So Jaron and Patricia apparently get the same deal that everybody else got. And so there, so now you have the three couples, the three, the three families on the beach and blast the blue, blue, three families. And then car, uh, uh, mid-sized sedan. I was about to call him car mid-sized sedan. <laughs> Boy, that's the dumbest name. Anyway, mid-sized sedan is on the beach too. Sans his friend who hasn't yet to come back. And so blue, blah, blue all together. And then real quickly, I'm going to just move you to it. The first shocking thing that we see, it, well, two shocking things happen. First, um, the cap, one of the Kappa kids, I can't remember if it's Maddox or Trent, is, it jumps into, what is that little, first off, this is little area of water that is on the other side of the beach. Basically, it's this little Trent trench that fills up when the, 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 the tide is high, something like water in a cave, something like that. Anyway, that water is standing and it didn't think that it was water that you could be in, but maybe it's not standing water. Maybe it's just water that is filled up in this cavern from the ocean itself and it's just separate because I know that that happens too. But anyway, he's in this dank, cavey little area in the water and he comes across a skeleton. Or he comes, yeah, he comes across a skeleton 
and they pull it out. And then at some point they come across a woman's body and it turns out that it's the woman that Midsize Sedan was with. And so it's all an uproar and immediately, immediately, um, Charles and his insecure self, even though he's fine, his insecure self looks at uh, Midsize Sedan funny from the jump. And Midsize Sedan is not exactly doing anything to to throw suspicion off of him. So it is what it is. Here we are, everybody on the beach. So Jaron, who's, who's, so you've, so you've got um, Charles, who's a doctor, like a surgeon. And then you've got Jaron, who's, it feels like an ER nurse. And so they both spring to kind of action to try to figure out, you know, what's what. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, there's this suspicion now on midsize sedan that he might've had something to do with um, the, 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 the death of, of this woman that, that he was with. Um, I can't remember if they find two bodies or just the one. Maybe it's just the one. Anyway, and it's her. Anyhow, so, Blast of the Blue, Blue, Blue. Um, let me just get to, let me get to the quick. Okay, so, we don't learn until maybe two hours in that something might be wrong um, with the beach and with them themselves. So the first inkling that we know something is wrong is that I think Jaron, Jaron or Charles tries to go back through the cave the way they came to go get help when they discover the woman's body. And it's, it's actually Charles. Charles goes, tries to go through that cave and he instantly, something begins to happen to his head. He instantly has this pounding pressure on his head and then he blacks out. And then the next thing we see, he's laid out like literally prostrate on the ground and he's waking up and everybody's telling him you blacked out. It looks like you had like a massive uh, headache and let's just chill out here for a while. And then some other health emergency happens. Something happens with... um, Something is beginning to happen with uh, Agnes and Jaron tries to go get help um, through the cave again. And he has the same issue. He gets this massive headache and he blacks out. And the next thing he knows, he's laid out on the sand. Um, and then so that's the first inkling that we know something is amiss. And so if there is an a emergency at all, um, or maybe it was Jaron and then it was... Charles that goes out, but neither, nonetheless, both of them experienced that issue where they black out and they, after, after having a severe headache, instantly trying to go through the cave, um, or back through the cave where they came. And so everybody's in a little bit of a panic because they're like, okay, so we're dealing with some emergencies here. Something's going on with Agnes. What's tea? And then we notice that the children are a little bit bigger. That's like the big thing. They're a little bit bigger. So whereas Maddox was 11, now she looks like she's a teenager. And whereas uh, Trent was six, five or six, now he's a preteen. And there's the other girl that was that is with Charles and Crystal. Um, she too, again, was around Trent's age and now she's a preteen. And they're like, what? She, they're the size of preteens and Maddox herself is a teen. 
uh, or appears to be a teenager. And we know this because Charles examines the both of them and Jaron or all three of them and Jaron does too. And both Jaron and Charles come to the conclusion that Maddox appears to be a 14 year old. I would put her by the look of her, I would put her at about 14. And then the, I would put I would put Trent and this other child at about preteen, 10 or 11. What the heck? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Agnes gets really sick. She's, she's breathing funny, and then she just stops breathing. Again, medical emergency. They can't seem to get off the boat she, or the, off the island. She dies. So now that we have a second dead body on the beach. Um... And some more time passes, and then we start to recognize that everybody's getting more wrinkles. So uh, Prisha and Guy have wrinkles on her face. Actually, Prisha notices Guy's face wrinkling. Um, And as Guy's face was wrinkling, here's the other thing that's happening. So everybody's wrinkling, including Crystal, who is now just slowly and surely losing her looks, and she's terrified of it. But there's also, in addition to Charles also getting more wrinkles, he's beginning to, you, you, you kind of see that he's beginning to slip a little bit. Um, yep, you, yeah, you're beginning to see that he's, that he's slipping a little bit in his, in his mind because in this inappropriate time, he's asking questions about something that is totally irrelevant to what they're dealing with in the most inappropriate time. Also, he's angry and he's threatening. He threatens to, uh, he threatens um, mid-sized sedan with a knife. He threatens Jaron with a knife. He actually th- threatens Jaron first. No, he threatens mid-sized sedan first and then he threatens Darren, uh, Jaron first, uh, also with a knife. And then it just escalates from there. So meanwhile, back at the ranch, the kids continue to grow Maddox, who an hour ago had aged to be about a 14-year-old, is now in her 20s. And, and Trent and Maddox, or, or Trent and um, the other, the Charles and Crystal's daughter, are now teenagers themselves. And the families are freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. They don't know what the heck is happening. And then they work out that they're aging for whatever reason, either being on this island, being in the water, something about where they are right now is aging. They're aging. So they work out that an hour is like a number of years. 30 minutes is a couple of months, but an hour is like so many months and an hour is so many years. And so that's why the kids are aging so quickly. Um, Yeah, the kids are aging quickly and so are they. And then you put two and two together and you realize, okay, so that's why, that's why Agnes died because they had been there for at this point four hours now. And that was the equivalent of like 10 or so years. And that was her lifetime. And everybody's aging because they've aged about 10 years or so. Um, and then, then you're starting to think about everything. And so while they're working these things out, the kids are growing and everybody's getting more wrinkly and a little less able to do the things they want to do. Um, 
what's her name? Uh, Patricia is having more seizures and she gets to a place where she has like a bunch of seizures in a, in a five minute period. Why? Because as she was in her lifetime, as she was going to age, she was going to her her seizures were going to increase more, which I think here's a here's an instant flaw in this whole logic, because if she came experiencing seizures, it's not like they're once in a blue seizures come when they come. But that whole time, if they were aging, like if they had been there for four hours aging, she was not having a seizure every five seconds if they were going by if if you use the logic that 30 minutes was so many months. So anyway, there was already a little bit of a logic flaw there, but like she kept having seizures back to back to back. And Jaron was like, well, I got to get help for my wife. I got to go get help for my wife. So what does he do? He hops into the ocean and tries to go get help to try to save his wife. He's a, he claims that he was a, an athlete swimmer. And so he's he's just not going to sit here on this island and wait for his wife to die. He's got to do something. So, of course, he goes off into the water and then he doesn't come back until he does come back. But he's not alive when he comes back. Um, And Patricia is just left here and she's distraught. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Charles is losing it. And then he begins... There's a moment where he loses it again when, you know, uh, Jaron goes off and. Oh, here's the other thing. This is what I meant to tell you. Um, Charles cuts um, initially when I told you he was uh, tried to attack midsize sedan. He does attack midsize sedan. He cuts his cheek and the, the cut instantly heals. And that's when they start to really think, oh, shoot, something is amiss. And then the children are aging and then their wrinkles and then, you know, so on and so forth. Um, But anyway, he tries to attack Jaron and he does. He cuts him, but that heals pretty quickly. Um, But then so Jaron is found drowned and, you know, they start to the family goes into a panic. The kids are now in their 20s at this point. And now Trent and. Trent and uh, Charles and Crystal's daughter goes off. We don't see Crystal anymore uh, because she's run off because you get the sense that she's aging in a way that she doesn't appreciate. And she's trying to hide herself from the from the rest of the, the group. And anyway, so we see Trent and Charles and Crystal's daughter go off and they're getting closer. And you know what's about to happen. They're going to get really close and their body is changing. Their chemistry is changing. And now they're in their 20s. And they're exploring each other. So we'll come back to them in a second. But Charles, on the other hand, is losing his grip on reality. And he's still saying things at an inappropriate time. And now he's violent. He's he's already proven to be violent. They should have isolated him before, but he's already proven to be violent. And now he comes over. And again, he's been jealous of Midsize Sedan from the jump. And then he accused Midsize Sedan of killing the woman that he was with. We learn that everybody who's on the island has is living with something. So we know that Prisha is on the island because, specifically uh, on there, because she had a tumor that was malignant, but could have been, uh, well, I think it was mal- mal- malignant. 
And so they cut it out of her, but it, like, again, it grows rapidly. Everything is sped up, so it grows rapidly. They cut it out of her, and then she's cool. Um, she has a new lease on life, and in that time, her hair is gray now. Um, uh, Guy's hair is gray, and they're all wrinkly, and there's feels like a love connection. Like, they're, they're connected again. They're, they're, you know, back to each other now. And meanwhile, actually, uh, Charles is the one that cuts it out of her. And every time he makes an incision, the incision closes up. So they have to hold the incision open. And actually, this, is, this cut, this moment actually happens before Jaron goes off to try to save his wife and ends up drowning. Um, but yeah, they hold it open and he gets the tumor out that grows rapidly into like a, a softball size or what have you. Um, and she heals up and she's a little bit better, but like... But that was her issue. Um, I keep forgetting her name. Patricia's issue was that she had these grand mal seizures that were very debilitating. Um, Charles's issue was that he was slipping into um, his, his I, he was probably getting dementia. Um, he, yeah, he was probably actually slipping into dementia. Um, and midsize sedan was there because he was, he was diagnosed with a rare brain tumor that was going to take his life at any moment. And he met his friend or some rare condition that was going to take his life any moment. And so this trip was designed to just be something like a reset so that he can get back to himself and recognize, you know, I can't do anything about this. So let me just enjoy my life. And so that's why he was on the beach because he was sullen. He was sullen because he's still coming to terms with the grip of this terminal condition that he's living with meanwhile this the girl that was trying to entice him he literally had just met her he literally had just met her and that's why that's why he was kind of standoffish because he was selling and he just met this woman and we're coming to know that he really didn't do anything to her she because everyone was aging you put two and two together and he she died in the water because that was when it, life was sped up and she didn't have but so much time left. Um, anyway, so now let's flash forward. Jaron is dead. Agnes is dead. The kids are in their 20s now. Um, and Trent and Charles and Crystal's daughter have gone off and they're exploring each other's bodies and they do what adults do or people who are exploring each other's bodies do. And so they're off by themselves. Meanwhile, Charles just freaks out and finds the knife again and begins to stab um, mid-size to Dan and actually stabs him to death. And things have descended into madness and... Um, Trent and Charles and Agnes and um, Crystal's daughter comes out and she is not only are they in their 20s, but now she is pregnant and she's rapidly growing her body. Her belly grows before their eyes and then she gives birth. The baby dies within minutes because I guess that was what was supposed to happen. She dies within minutes. Um, and they're completely distraught. Everyone's completely distraught. And the situation just deteriorates. Then Guy dies. 
Guy dies, Charles dies, Crystal dies. We see Crystal and she's super wrinkly. Crystal dies. Um, and then Prisha is the last one to go. Oh, before that, um, Charles and Charles and uh, Crystal's daughter climbs the cliff. She's trying to get out of there to go get help. And she gets to the top of the cliff and she falls. This is after she loses the baby. Um, she falls and of course she dies. And so everybody's just dying left and right until the point where there's only Trent and Maddox who are left. And they decide that they're going to do the same thing that Jaren did. Uh, oh, my bad. Uh, Patricia dies as well. Patricia's one of the early ones that dies after, after um, Charles kills um, Midsize Sedan. And so all that are left on the beach, it's, at this point, they're aging rapidly in a day. So at this point, it's the evening um, of the day. And Trent and... Trent and Maddox are well into their late 30s, early 40s at this point. Um, so their hair is graying. And they both look to each other and decide, because again, they all know we're growing at a rapid rate. And if we don't want to die on this island, we got to do what we got to do. So they both decide that they're going to finish what the, the, the race that Jaren started, which was to try to swim to the other side of the beach to get off of this doggone thing so that they can survive. And they go off on their journey. They start to swim, they go deep, they start diving, and they dive into this canal of what looks to be coral or bones, I can't remember which. And anyway, Maddox gets caught, like something that she's wearing gets tangled onto the reef. And Trent, who is looks like he's not far from escaping, turns around and he tries to free his sister. And in that moment, they drown, they die. And so now everybody that came, mid-sized sedan, Charles, Crystal, Agnes, their daughter, uh, Guy, Prisha, Maddox, Trent, um, Jaron and Patricia. Yeah, Jaron and Patricia, I can't, I think I said it already. Anyway, everybody who went there dies. And then we meet, um, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's character, who turns out to be a scientist in this whole thing, was uh, an experiment. Um, they intentionally chose folks who had terminal situations, which feels like a flaw because the only one that had the terminal situation was literally Patricia, uh, Patricia, um, Charles, Prisha, and mid-sized sedan and the woman that he was with. Those were the only ones. Why everyone else had to die, had to age and die with them feels stupid. I didn't stick around to truly understand why, because at the end of the day, this was a dumb, this was a dumb twist. And all of M. Night Shyamalan's movies have dumb twists to them. Um, they all have these weird twists that like, you were doing so, you, you might've been doing okay, but then you, when you get to the twist, it's stupid. And there's a school of thought that says, oh, he's really just making high quality B movies. And I'm like, we'll do that somewhere else because you're wasting really great talent. Because here's the other thing. He had Adrian Brody in that one movie. He's, he's attracted Adrian Brody. Um, what's the, the guy's, the, 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 the guy's name? Um, who's a kooky actor anyway. River Phoenix was his, was his brother. The, uh, you know who I'm talking about, that one particular, like, oh, he, he attracts 
high quality actors to these ridiculous films, it's frustrating. To say the very least, it's frustrating. Like, I better never see, I better never see um, no doggone Denzel Washington, Denzel as his name actually is. I'm never gonna get over the fact that his name is Denzel. And his mama was like, and he's named after his daddy. And his mama was like, uh-uh, ain't gonna be two Denzel, Denzels in the house. Your name is Denzel, Junior. Anyway, um, I better not see Denzel. I better not see um, Viola Davis, although that wild woman, she probably would be an M. Night Shyamalan movie because she wanted to be just out there. I better not see uh, Glenn Close. I better not see, what's that other white woman who's really good? Oh, she played, what's her name? Everybody knows her. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. She played in Doubt. She played the, 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 um, the, the nun that got demoted in Doubt. You know who I'm talking about. She's good, like real good. Academy Award winning multiple times over good. Um, anyway, she played opposite uh, Viola Davis in Doubt. Hold on, let me Google it because now I got to have that woman's name. Doubt. Doubt. What's her name? What's her name? Meryl Streep. I better never see Meryl Streep. Okay. In one of his films, I better never see any of these actors that I think are tippy top good in any of his affairs because I feel like it just, I don't know that it cheapens them because certainly everybody deserves to do, to have really great films and really bad films in their repertoire. But I just, and they made money because again, the budget was 18 and this movie made 90. So they made their money back in spades. But it's just so frustrating because these movies aren't, like they tie you in to be good and then they're just not good. But maybe I'm in that category of folks who are like, you either love or you hate him and I don't like him. So maybe there's that. Anyway, but, um, but yeah, I maintain that Ron Howard could have made a better old because you know what he would have done? What he could have done is isolated he would have isolated the characters because I think one of the biggest flaws of this thing is not necessarily how rapidly they age. I think that that concept was fine enough. I even think the concept of it being an experiment was fine enough too. I just think that I think it was gratuitous the way that the rest of the family aged and died too. I thought it was completely unnecessary. Figure out another way to get them isolated. Say that you're on an all expense paid trip for these radical cures. And I think Ron Howard would have gotten you, would have gotten us there. All expense paid to radical cures for all of your ailments and them tentatively meeting each other and then trying to play off like they're not sick. But you know, like um, Patricia coming and just being blunt because she's a psychologist coming out right out and saying, hey, listen, I'm here because I'm looking for this radical treatment that will cure my epilepsy that will surely take my life one day. Um, or my rare condition of, of epilepsy and something else that will surely take my life one day. Why are you here? And then we get to know why they're all here. And there are some love connections made. There are some, there's some strife happening. And then they realize, all of them realize collectively that, you know, Charles comes in and he's super rich and he's super famous, but he's, He's got, um, he's living with a condition that is becoming dangerous and he wants to, he wants to keep it from his profession for, um, but, and he also wants to still provide for his family and still be seen as a capable person. 
and then his walls begin to break down. He, initially, he's on the outside of the group, but his walls begin to break down when they all realize that this is just a wild experiment and they just mean for these folks to die um, from something else. And so they all band together and try to escape together this place. And then it doesn't have to be that everybody makes it. It could just be that one person makes it or nobody makes it, but in nobody making it, they expose this, they expose this um, experiment team for who they are and the experiment is shut down or something wild like that. You know what I mean? Something that's an uplifting sort of thing. Not that everything has to end on a high note, but like there is, there has to be a purpose for this. This M. Night Shyamalan movie, there was no purpose to why they all suffered, including why the family who did not have a weakness in our quote unquote, and that's another thing. It, it sets it up like these people had weaknesses and they were exploited for their weakness. Terminal situation is, it should be the premise. And none of the rest of the family had terminal situation. Agus didn't do nothing to them. That's so wild. But anyway, you know, and mid-sized sedan's name would have been different if Ron Howard had directed this. His name would not have been mid-sized sedan and it, it would have been something cool for real. Cause he wouldn't have let that slide mid-sized sedan. He would not have let that slide. Anyway, um, it just would have been a better movie, I think, if Ron Howard had directed it. But anyway, go watch Cocoon. Do yourself a favor. Is it the most high tech? No, it's from 1985, but it's a good film because there are moments where you see these clearly aged people who in a moment get in the pool and then they become young and then the, the oh, am I about to spoil this for you? So they become young and then I'll leave it at that. In them being young, well, I will say in them being young, you literally see them reliving childhood memories that they had and it becomes fun. Like you, I, I thought it was so fun. Me watching it as a child, seeing these adults experience childhood again was so heartwarming to me. Was it perfect? No, but it was a good film. So go watch Cocoon. Watch, watch old and then go watch Cocoon and tell me if Cocoon would not have been, tell me if Ron Howard would not have been able to do better with more technology, more director experience under his belt, would not have been able to produce, or to direct old and have it be a better film. You tell me that. Anyway, I have talked enough and hopefully I've piqued your interest about another film. Um, and I've hoped I've helped you get through your task or your day or whatever, just helped you to relax. All right. Because it's mental health awareness month, but no, because it's, because it's Thursday or whatever day you're listening to this, have a good day, take care of yourself, step away from that situation. It'll be there later. Give yourself some grace, take a breath. You're going to be okay. Yep. Be kind to yourself. Have a good day. Until next time.